How do you get shoppers out of their homes and into your stores? Find out how to create a meaningful trend in a saturated market. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor. I'm your host, Bob Fibbs. On this episode, I'm talking to Emmanuel Probst, the author of Brand Hacks, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Human Quest for Meaning. He's also a professor at UCLA. Today, we'll learn how to succeed in a saturated market and how influencers are cheating your shoppers. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. So who are you and what do you have to do with retail? Thank you, Bob. Um, I'm Emmanuel Probst, and uh, I started in retail. That's what's Ah. compelling. When I first arrived in the UK, that was in 2001. I'm dating myself here, but I worked on a shop floor. (laughs) And in very diverse environments, I worked in luxury retail for churches' shoes, which the equivalent of uh, John Rob or Alan Edmonds, if you will, a type of store you would find on uh, Madison oh. Avenue. I love their shoes. Absolutely. They're great shoes. Yeah. And I then work for phones for you and at the time uh, selling cell phones. So a uh, very fast paced retail environment. And later in my career, I also work in consumer experience management. A few years ago, I helped the likes of uh, Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secrets at the time and TGI Fridays and Chili's manage their customer experience. Well, great. Well, you've, you've written a, a compelling new book and in it you say that consumers are sick and tired of advertising. So if that's true, <laughs> then what are successful brands doing instead? Yeah, consumer are and tired of advertising because we burnt them out. It's too many messages and we're interrupting their lives and their conversations and we are disrupting their community. Uh, What brands should do? Well, what consumers look for, they look for meaning. They look for something that's purposeful and engaging. And what brands should do is understand that, understand these meanings consumers are trying to fulfill and help consumer fulfill these meanings. So instead of pushing more advertising, more marketing down the road of consumers, uh, take a step back, understand what consumers really want to achieve in life. From there, build a brand that's meaningful, that helps fulfill this quest for meaning. So it seems to me, when I look at most retailers these days, uh, the consumer wants a deal. So all they care about is whoever is cheapest and uh, they can get their loyalty points. Um, you know, can you describe the difference between uh, a meeting, you know, like um, meaning or maybe a trend or something is, because you talk about that in the book as well. And I think meaning is so easy to misunderstand. Yeah, you're right. I'm happy to clarify for you. So first you said consumers want to deal well, and that's tempting for retailers to a third deal because it drives traffic, it drives footfall, it drives sales instantly. But that doesn't drive the brand in the long run. And we can talk more about this in a second if you'd like, Bob. Um, so a trend, a meaning, and a fad. And we use those words in our industry, um, and they're ill-defined. A fad is something that fades. So most diets 
are fads because it's unlikely that you will want to eat uh, turnips and broccoli smoothies for the rest of your life. So that's a fad. A trend is something that is likely to influence the market in a five to seven years window. So Pilates is a trend, meditation is a trend, um, CrossFit is a trend whereby you have brick and mortar retail businesses being built around those trends and hopefully they last um, for a while. The meaning now is something that is deeper, that is more, um, that is purposeful and fulfilling, that gives you um, the this feeling of doing something that's larger than yourself. So how do you benefit the community? How is that beneficial for your personal identity? But something that is a lot more engaging and a lot deeper than just a, a fat diet or a CrossFit workout. Gotcha. Well, I know, uh, 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 Faith Popcorn had talked probably 20 years ago. She saw cocooning was going to be the big trend and that it was going to be a matter of going home and shutting the world out. And, you know, at the time I thought, oh, well, is this going to have legs? Well, we're still seeing it continuing to expand, right? Where uh, grocery stores, right. where uh, restaurants are all fighting over how do I get product to the customer so they don't have to leave their home once they're there. And, um, does that does that look like um, that adds to somebody's meaning? Um, it that really does. They don't have to do. Yeah, you're right. I think cocooning was a little bit of a buzzword, and that word evolved, uh, but this meaning is still there. So uh, I'll give you an example, Bob. People tend to live in smaller homes now, and it's not so much because of money, because of affordability, is the trend of the Big Mac mentions is um, fading because we want something that is more personal, maybe with some history and something that feels, well, we call it a place where you can sit and you can see the world from this place. So in all likelihood in your house, you have maybe a recliner, maybe a particular chair or uh, maybe a pillow or a place in your house where you like to sit. And that we're going back to cocooning. That's your place where you like to sit, reflect, and see the world from. And to your point, that uh, meaningful trend, I will call it a meaningful trend, is very, very prevalent for sure and uh, important for retail. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, I live in upstate New York and I look out over the Hudson River. I'm, I consider myself fairly privileged uh, in that respect mm. um, that I can go all around the world and speak to audiences of tens of thousands of people. But when I get home, I want to be home. I want to have my little place yeah, exactly. in the world where, you know, I can be uh, in my place and uh, and enjoy um, kind of tuning out from, from all that, even though I'm probably still on my stupid iPhone and uh, fully connected. Um, you know, in the, in the book, you talk about psychographics and micro moments. Um, can you give me a little bit more on that? Yeah, these are very important for retailers, for our audience, Bob. Um, for the longest time, we targeted people on demographics. So age, gender, region, household income, size, household educational background, ethnic background. Uh, psychographics, um, these are about your mindset, your values, 
your preferences, your attitudes. And my point is, unless you sell a house or maybe a car, income, for example, doesn't really matter much. What matters is the mindset of the consumer. So let me explain. If you take a luxury brand like Louis Vuitton, those handbags are, what, three, $4,000. Most people buying those handbags are not high-income earners. They decide to treat themselves, invest in these handbags because of the emotional benefit. The point of psychographics is to say you're going to talk to your consumers based on their mindsets, based on their lifestyle attributes, based on who they are and who they want to become. And that's how Starbucks can charge you $5 for a cup of coffee and sell that to students that make $12,000 a year on campus. It's not because it's affordable. It's because by going to Starbucks, you are part of this group. You are part of this tribe. That's why psychographics are so important. When I'm Starbucks or when I'm Joe and the Juice or when I'm a a retailer like Kiehl's, for example, it's not so much about the income and the ethnic background and the age of my consumers. That's not important. What's important is what are their lifestyle values? That is, who are they and who do they want to become? I think that's really interesting. You know, there was an article recently about the difference between – I think illustrating this point that the Levi's customer is not the Wrangler customer and how they are seeing that Levi's customers are worn in blue states, typically in large urban areas, whereas Wrangler is uh, predominantly being seen in red states and more rural areas. And the badge of honor for both is, um, you know me and these are my people. And uh, I think it's in some ways it can sound very simplistic. Oh, okay. So which brand are you? But I think we're more complex than that, aren't we? I mean, aren't we? I hope to goodness that we are not going to become more polarized, but that we find out we're more alike than different. But certainly we do define ourselves by the products that we purchase more than like when I grew up as a kid, as a boomer, everything was mass market. So everybody would take the one Excedrin uh, headache pill or you would everybody would want to be the uh, wear the Levi's and you know our, as we as we seem to see more and more micro brands coming online it would seem harder in many ways to achieve scale marketing to people based on their lifestyles and aspirations a lot to unpack here in what you said Bob <laughs> no, First, sorry just, <laughs> of course just like you, I'm uh, compelled or surprised or at times baffled to see correlations between brands and politics. What you said about Levi's versus Wrangler is so true. Um, we see this across other products in automotive, for example. So um, David Axelrod, who advised Barack Obama back in 2008, uh, from data science, David Axelrod and his team had teased out that if you drive a minivan in Ohio, you are going to vote Republican. The correlation is like 90%. A minivan wow. in Ohio is Republican. It's baffling. It's, those correlations are very surprising. So my point is, frankly, politics and brands go hand in hand because uh, some brands are politically polarized, whether they want it or not a brand like Nike, uh, of course, the likes of Fox, CNN, Trump Hotels, those are very, very polarized. 
but many brands are slightly, at least slightly polarized politically. Um, and also that teaches us that marketing and politics, these are two of the same things because politicians are brands themselves, at least in my experience. Yeah. And then you, you spoke about micro brands and scaling those brands. And I think that's what's compelling with the direct to consumer business. Um, I feel the short answer is micro brands can succeed even in saturated markets because they bring a new experience, not a new product, but a new experience and importantly, a new relationship with the client. And I think that's something our audience of retailers here should really think very deeply about. What is my relationship with clients? How do I foster a very personal relationship with my customers? And how can they scale? Well, that's the beauty of data and technology um, because you can ship um, your goods for cheap around the country because you can manage your supply chain so that you can scale fairly reasonably easily, if you will. Well, and you're not trying to be a mass merchant. So, uh, you know, you look at the you're rise right. of a brand, for example, like a Casper, and you can understand yeah. that, okay, they know who their brand is. But it's, you know, I think of Casper, though, I'm an old guy, I'm a, I'm a boomer, I'm 61. You know, to me, Casper is a millennial mm -hmm. brand, because I never would take a video of my mattress um, resting, because you have to let it rest before you lay on it, right? Taking videos and sharing that on social media, but if you know who that person is, I think there are so many more ways now that you can, to your point, you know, hack that moment to say that I know exactly who my customer is. And you go to market knowing that before saying, I'll just build it and see who comes. I think those days are probably gone. Would you agree? I could not agree more. And Casper is a perfect example of that new relationship with customers I was referring to. So here's the deal. The very last thing we needed in the United States is another uh, mattress retailer. Who cares, okay? We already have thousands and thousands of stores selling mattresses. And it's not because you have more stores that people are going to buy more mattresses. So that's exactly what I meant when I said a micro brand can enter a saturated, super lean market and transform this market. So what did Casper do? Do they sell mattresses? Yeah, sure, of course they do. Importantly, they established a new relationship with the customer. They established a new sales channel to sell the same very lame product that is a mattress, but engage in a very different relationship and very different format with the consumer. And they're telling a story. And that is so important. Casper in Soho, New York, opened the Dreamery. And the Dreamery is a place where you can go to take a nap for 30 minutes and they provide you with eye shades and relaxing oils and all that stuff. Um, is the Dreamery making money? I don't know, and who cares? What's important is Casper is telling you a story about sleep, about rest, about reflecting, about taking time for yourself. Everyone else, mattress firm, as an example, American Mattress or Sit and Sleep or Fill the Blank, they're not telling you a story. They're pushing some, come to my store this weekend, 20% on everything. That's a lower funnel drive traffic, short-sighted, short-term strategy. Well, and does it doesn't seem like that 
is working. Um, it's interesting to me that a couple of years ago, Target went through and uh, announced they were going to put all this money into their stores and their people. Walmart does the same thing, opens 200 training centers and the stock tanks. People say, why are you investing in brick and mortar stores? And yet both of them have come through in the last season and been darlings because they have been able to figure it out. I think Target certainly has, has become the millennial department store. I think people understand them. They get the value proposition. I think they feel smarter going there. And yet a lot of legacy brands, the Macy's, the um, fill in the blank, most department stores are still mm -hmm. struggling with this. So what kind of brand hacks do you think that some of these legacy retailers could adopt to survive? Yeah, that's very interesting what you said about Target. And the bright spot for our audience today is I feel days retail is very relevant. I don't think retail is going away. And to address your question about Macy's, honestly, um, the store format, I think, doesn't work because the store is too small to compete with Amazon on inventory, and it's too big to deliver a personal kind of shopper's experience. And it's not unique enough. Target developed a lot of private labels, a lot of their own brands, and we don't see much of this at Macy's, if it's to buy an item that I can also buy on Amazon, well, nobody can win against Amazon on price and on convenience and on inventory. So to address your question precisely, I think there is a lot of potential in retail for smaller footprints, smaller store footprints for a very personal experience. Um, there is an opportunity in retail for an online to offline to online experience. So someone that does this well is skills, for example, whereby you can go on the website, buy some products, but you'll go in store because you want some tips on how to use the products. And maybe you'll buy more products from the same line. And then you keep your, your journey, if you will, you continue with your journey online. Uh, but those are smaller store formats for sure. Uh, in short, in a nutshell, the opportunity for retail is to deliver an experience and some emotions that you can de facto not experience online because Amazon does not convey emotions. Amazon conveys convenience, price, inventory, and reliability. We'll explore more in just a bit, but first, a quick word about Field Agent, our sponsor. Field Agent is an on-demand platform that furnishes businesses with in-store information, shopper insights, and services to drive product sales all through the Field Agent mobile app, featuring a panel of over 1.5 million shoppers. In a matter of hours, you can get photos and data from stores everywhere. If you need in-store visibility and you need it fast, Field Agent is the solution for you. Visit www.fieldagent.net slash retail doctor for exclusive content. Now let's get back to it. So you have harsh words for so-called social media influencers. I mean, is that because you're jealous of their fame and money or, and no one's asking you? Or uh, do you think that there's um, something kind of backwards about them, especially when it comes to marketing your brand? Uh, that's a, a good point. <laughs> I don't think I would be talented for uh, doing silly things on YouTube. So... Am I jealous of their fame and money? Yeah, it's quite impressive to see how much wealth they amassed uh, 
in a short period of time that said, I don't think I could do the same thing. I don't think I could do the silly thing. So no, I'm not really jealous of who they are. Uh, I have harsh words for these influencers because I don't think they're as genuine, as authentic anymore as they were meant to be in the first place, at least not most of them. So social influencers built their audience and their business on the fact that we can relate to them, or if anything, millennials and Gen Z can relate to them. It's kind of that the girl next door, if you will, type of relationship. In academia, we call this reducing this social distance. So in contrast, when you see George Clooney or Brooke Shields in an ad or LeBron James or people like this, while you may admire them as individuals, it's hard to relate because you don't really live their lives. They don't live in your neighborhood. Um, they drive faster cars and they have a nicer house than you do. So they're not relatable and they're not accessible. In contrast, social influencers are supposed to be relatable and accessible. Over time, as they became wealthier with larger audiences, they're just cheating their audience into making them believe that they are still relatable, accessible. In fact, they have teams of seven to 10 people working from them. And importantly, they now endorse brands that make no sense. You cannot endorse toothpaste on Monday and plastic bags on Tuesday and yeah. some body scrub on Wednesday and a car on Thursday and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think people see through that. I know I, as you were saying that, I was remembering a bit by Lily Tomlin and uh, the interviewer asked her, Lily, it's, you've been accused of, of selling out. And she answers, well, I've always been selling out. It's just before there were no buyers. And I think that's kind of what social media's uh, influencers are like. Yeah, they, they would have taken a check much earlier. Just nobody was offering it to them. So uh, I think that's a, yeah. that's a great point where, we're getting close to the end of our time. I'm, I'm curious, how has the way you thought about retail changed from when you worked on the floor you know, decades ago to what you're seeing happening now? Yeah. I'm keen to tell you, Bob, what has changed and what has not changed. So what has changed, I'm, that goes without saying, is people don't need to leave their home anymore. We need to give them a much stronger reason to come to the store. How do we do this? We deliver a unique experience. We show something unique in the store. Maybe it's artwork. Maybe it can be a DJ on Friday. Maybe we can do a pop-up store, something that is very eventful. Maybe we can bring a guest designer or guest speaker. But we need to create uh, an event in the store so that your store becomes a go-to in the community. We cannot just sell goods and services in stores. That just doesn't work anymore. So this is the part that has changed. The part that has not changed, reflecting all the way to 2001 when I was <coughs> selling shoes at churches, is the importance of this personal relationship with clients and this attention to detail, and this empathic, genuine connection with the customer. I couldn't say that better. That's the world I work in, my friend. So um, how can they find out more about you and your new book? Thank you, Bob. And my profile on LinkedIn is Emmanuel Props. It's Emmanuel with two M's. My book is Brand Hacks, How to 
real brands by fulfilling the human quest for meaning. And brand hacks is available on Amazon, of course. And I also work as a senior vice president of brand health tracking for Ipsos. So there are information about my writing and my thinking on the Ipsos website. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Bob. Well, that pretty much does it. And I want to thank my guest, Emmanuel Probst. You know, one thing I took away from this conversation is micro companies can succeed just as large companies can when you foster that personal relationship with shoppers in this digital world. That's something I talk about a lot on my blog and in my keynote speeches. On the next episode of Tell Me Something Good About Retail, I'll speak with Alex Shufford, CEO of a luxury furniture group that includes Century Furniture, Hancock & Moore, and others about how to manage customer service expectations because he started with brick-and-mortar retail locations himself. You won't want to miss it. I'm Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor. Thanks again for listening. Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of The Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom and pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit RetailDoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information, to access the complete archives of past retail goodness, and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit RetailDoc.com.